free kids workshops are back in stores at the Home Depot. On the first Saturday of every month from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com slash kids. For 25 years, the Home Depot has been building confident future doers with its free kids' workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Lost by last, US only. Well, I think it's safe to say that with a guest like this, there's absolutely nobody listening to this bit. You've just scrubbed on by and I don't blame you. So there's no point in me telling you to subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud so that you get a notification when there's a new episode. There's no point. I'm not going to bother. There's no point in me pleading with you to tell your friends about it or put it on Twitter or Facebook. We just move on to the chat with one of the most successful songwriters of all time. And that is fact because it's in the Guinness Book of Records. And in what can only be described as a spectacular middle finger to his songwriting genius, here's the dreadful theme music. Hello, you are very welcome to this episode of Fascinated with me, Gerard Farrelly. What a guest. Oh, what a guest we have today. As part of Stock Aiken and Waterman, he is acknowledged as the most successful producer-songwriter in British chart history. He holds the record for the most number one records with different acts. See that? Two definitives right there. He has written or produced no less than 18 number one records in America and the UK with over 100 top 40 hits. My God. That is just unbelievable. Imagine that on your CV. That is fantastic. So how did this all begin? Well, in 1983, on New Year's Eve, Mike Stock was gigging with his band Mirage. During a break in their set, he told the rest of the band that he would be leaving to work as a songwriter and a producer. Now, at that time, he couldn't have known that within seven years, he would be at the heart of one of the world's most successful songwriting and production teams. A couple of weeks later, another member of Mirage, Matt Aiken, joined Mike in his New Year's resolution. They met Pete Waterman and the rest is history. Like, it all just fell into place so quickly. That's unbelievable. They had their first top 20 hit by July with Divine, an American drag queen who performed her song You Think You're a Man on Top of the Pops. By September, they had produced the song that would give them their first number one early the following year, You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive. The trio went on to write and produce for acts like Hazel Dean, Banana Rama, Mel and Kim. Oh, Mel and Kim. That is the saddest story. If you don't know what happened, look it up. It's, uh, it's so sad. Anyway, they also had Rick Astley, who started working with them as a T-boy in their studio, and he went on to sell 40 million records, which is unbelievable, because he was actually working there as part of a work placement scheme. So, in actual fact, the government were paying for him to learn how to be a pop star. That's unbelievable. Never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down. Never gonna 
Now, it goes without saying that they were very busy. So busy, in fact, that Pete Waterman forgot to inform the rest of the team that an actress from Australia who had had a hit with the locomotion would be coming to work with them. Throughout the week she was in London, she failed to get time with them. She showed up at the office on her last day, pretty frustrated, and she just sat in the waiting room. And it was Mike Stock who insisted that they give her time so they didn't appear rude. They wrote I Should Be So Lucky while she was waiting downstairs and they recorded the song in 40 minutes flat because Kylie Minogue had to be rushed to the airport because she had to go back to Australia. The song was put on the back burner for a few months until a producer at the BBC heard that it existed and asked if he could use it in a Noel Edmonds Christmas special. And it was a huge hit. And Mike Stock went to Australia to apologise about the rushed treatment and to convince Kylie Minogue to record a follow-up single with them. Now, we all know what happened after that. There was Jason Donovan, Sonia, there was the Band-Aid record, Donna Summer, Deborah Harry. The list just goes on and on and on. It was just hit after hit and the work and the pace was crazy. Until the end of 1993, just over 10 years since he left his band and Mike Stock ended his partnership with Pete Waterman. Now Mike has continued to produce and to write music. In fact, the only break he took was in 1996 when work on the London Underground Jubilee line caused severe structural damage to his recording studio. There's huge nostalgia for Stock Aiken and Waterman music. If you're a certain age, it's the soundtrack to your teenage years. It's the summer of 1989. Listen to You'll Never Stop Me Loving You or Too Many Broken Hearts. It just simply is the PR line. It is the soundtrack for a generation. It's really important to remember that in its day, it was absolutely vilified. They were never in favour with anyone except the public. They were never considered cool. And in fact, they were referred to as the hit factory. And this was meant as a criticism. Doesn't sound like a criticism, but it was. That was the way it was meant. It was they were just churning out hits and artists and artistry were just irrelevant. They would clean up at award ceremonies. And this was referred to in the papers as depressing. However, in 1986, it kind of became more than that. It became just jealousy. The Ivor Novello Award for Best Song of the Year is the most highly regarded award in songwriting, and they won it three years in a row, which is something that not even Lennon and McCartney managed to achieve. However, as they approached the stage to accept it, they were booed by their peers in the music industry. Isn't jealousy very unattractive? Remember that now the next time you get jealous. My God. Dicks. But to the legions of pop fans who bought the records by the truckload, the music became much more than Stock Aiken and Waterman's mission to be the sound of a bright young Britain. Mike attributes this to giving people what they want and making records for the public. And you'll, as you'll hear from the interview, this seems to be really important to him. This is Mike Stock's core belief. Now, I interviewed Mike on St. Patrick's Day, which turns out is actually an important day for him too. And you'll hear that in the interview. He absolutely just loves writing pop songs. It's just what he lives to do. He just lives it and breathes it. It was an absolute privilege to interview him. And here he is. Have a listen for yourself. It's Mike Stock. Mike Road, it's Mike. Mike, how are you? So nice to talk to you. Um, I, I, my, my money was on Gerard. Gerard, it's it's funny because uh, it's an an old Irish name, but uh, Irish people are probably the worst for it uh, because people who aren't Irish they kind of stop for a minute, but but Irish people just go, oh, it's Gerard or whatever. Yeah. No, I like it. I mean, I, I recently I had my um I did this DNA test. Oh really? You know, you know, there's, they're getting quite popular now, and 
found out I was more Irish than I ever knew. <laughs> oh, really? Well, I hope, uh, well, this is terrible that you're working on your day off because it's St. Patrick's Day here, so <laughs> <Yeah>. by rights. <laughs> but, I should have to start celebrating that now. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, it's your heritage. <laughs> Apparently so, yeah. So 13 number one hits, 100 top 40 singles and three Ivor Novello Awards. That's one hell of a CV. Well, thank you very much for that, but it, can I just correct you on one little thing? Oh, yeah? <laughs> we we won the Ivor Novello Award three years in succession for best songwriters, but actually I have, I think it's eight or nine Ivor Novellos for that period, or for different songs and for different sort of uh, categories. Sounds awful, yes. Well that, well, that is a worthy correction. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> if it was four Ivor Novello Awards, you kind of go, okay, you maybe let it go, but that's eight or nine. On the same year that we won, for example, Best Songwriters, we also won the best or the most performed work for Donna Summer or something, or the biggest selling single for Jason Donovan. So you see, you've got categories in there. <laughs> That's the interesting thing about all, all of the music at that time, that whether you, whether you like the music or whether you hate the music, like, I mean, leaving all that aside, it was absolutely everywhere. Well, I suppose, yeah, well, we worked very hard. I mean, I, I'm working, I'm still working hard, uh, but I think the, um, the, the I don't want the intensity of the pressure that, that I felt back then, because obviously it all came, I, being the sort of main songwriter of our trio, um, you know, when somebody says, oh, quick, we need another song for Sonia, or can write something for Banana Rama and come with it by lunchtime. <laughs> I, was like, I don't want to ever do it that intensely again, but I'm working hard now. And I think if we manage to achieve anything, I, I've just got this feeling no one else will put themselves through the same pressure again. So we might have the record uh, that will never be broken. I was reading a, bit, a little bit about Stock Aiken and Waterman last night, and it was, was it five studios working 24 hours a day? Well, we had, yeah, well, you see, the, the, the reason for that was uh, on an average sort of day, I might be working, well, I'd come in at 11 o'clock in the morning and listen to the mix from the night before, make some adjustments, and then I'd get stuck into, might be three different artists throughout, throughout the day, trying to bring a song to a conclusion where you could leave the engineer to get on with it and then he'd come in at night and then in the morning we listen to his mix and we start again so it was a sort of um round the clock you needed to do that i think just to cope with the, the amount of work we had but listen i don't i, I wouldn't want to do it again because actually being really honest i think um sometimes the quality um suffered a bit because you can't be 100 percent on the ball 100 percent of the time it's a bit like playing football, you know, you go through uh, periods of good form and sometimes you're off your game a bit. And and is there any, when you look back at all of the music, are there some songs that you think, oh God, I, I never really liked? I mean, most of them were hits anyway, but it, it, are there ones that you thought, God, you know, that, that, was, that wasn't my thing? Yeah, there are, there are a number, not, not completely about, I wouldn't dismiss the whole song, but sometimes I'm saying to myself when I hear him, like, God, I could have done a better middle eight than that, or um, the second verse is a bit weak lyrically, or, you know, or things like that. Parts of them, if we'd had more time, I think we would have polished them a bit bit brighter. It's interesting because um, in talking about Stock Aiken and Waterman and about Peter Woodwell, it, it almost becomes synonymous with Kylie Minogue and Jason Donovan. But you were having massive hits before Kylie ever came on the scene. I read Mel and Kim's Respectable sold two million singles. Well, yeah, Mel and Kim are a good example of what happened before, you know, the days before Kylie. Um, and even before 
uh, Mel and Kim, we'd um, we'd sort of broken the we, we broken our careers with um, first of all Divine, and then uh, Dead or Alive and Hazel Dean, and then a lady called Princess, where we sort of did R and B with her, yeah. and then we'd I think after that we did. Banana Rama's uh, Venus, first of all, and then sort of Mel and Kim, and then after that, and a few others, you get to Kylie. So there is a, there is a history before Kylie. <laughs> and the the songs that you're listing off there, if you're at something and one of those songs comes on, conversation stops because people hum along to, you know, to the Dead or Alive song or to Venus. They just pull you in. They they do seem to have lasted, and I do. I will say this. I know it's not self praise is no recommendation, but I was at. If you go to various do's over the Christmas period, um, you know, you can be sitting there, the music's terrible, but suddenly somebody puts on Venus or uh, one of the Kylie ones or whatever, and you, you are, then there's a medley of, of your songs coming on and everyone's up and whooping and jumping. So I think there's something that we were doing there because it was unpretentious. We weren't terribly uh, into the groove or the um, or the coolness of it. I mean, a lot of people today... You know, it's all about image and style, and we were yeah. much more, much more about getting a song across in a in an up tempo, positive way. Even though some of the lyrical content wasn't always just sugary, some of it. I mean, I should be so lucky. Actually, is a sad, sad little song. Um, it's about it's, it's 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 sadness because she's got everything else in her life, but she can't find the love she wants in a sort of strange, prescient way. That's. When I saw Kylie first met her, I kind of was thinking, God, this girl's got everything. I mean, that can't be right. What's wrong? What's she got? So that's why we came up with that particular song, because it, it felt like you can't have everything in life. You got to, Something's got to give. And it was the love aspect with her. So so I think some of the songs that we did back then, um, people t- treat them as a fluffy candy floss, but they had a big stick up the middle, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, a, a lot of them were, you know, You'll Never Stop Me Loving You, You're Never Going to Give You Up, all those songs, they were quite sad, you know, if you, if you were to read the lyrics. Well, yes, I think, um, I mean, I was always concerned about stupid things. I mean, a song I did for Carly called Better the Devil You Know, in the opening line, I, it's grammatically incorrect, but I could find no other <laughs> way of saying it. So sometimes, lyrically, um, we were doing things with quite a serious idea, you know, so that's why I always wanted to make sure, to some degree, we weren't going to restrict ourselves to the normal bla- blather that comes in pop, too many babies or too many yeah. noises off, just a lyric which tells a story. And sometimes even I had to forego the grammar. <laughs> yeah. Was there a strategy to take, because um, since you're talking about the song there, because the song was always the focus of the artist. Um, and that was never more obvious, I think, in that you took so many ordinary people and turned them into absolute megastars like Rick Astley and Sonia, who had no, you know, they didn't have any backstory really beyond, you know, drama, drama training or something like that. But they were they were just ordinary kids that suddenly became yeah, huge I, stars. You're right. That that is that is a big change uh, that's happened these days. Um, no, I don't think Rick or, or Sonia had any. Didn't go to drama college. There weren't the music colleges that there are now. That started in the nineties, and yeah, you do you do feel I've I've written about it. I do feel that that today, unless you've been to the Brit School or something like it, you don't you don't get an opportunity, which I think is a sad indictment. Because for me, real talent or special talent. Uh, kind of lurks 
on a housing estate somewhere in a garage practicing, you know, their singing or playing or something. And these days it seems that everyone's been to a college, which is more yeah. or less to do with their parents' um, aspirations as much as the kids, you know. it's uh, And, of course, there are thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of uh, students at these colleges all learning you know, music or performance arts or something, and there's not room for everybody not to be successful at it. When you met somebody like Sonia uh, and Rick and, you, you know, you gave them songs and it kind of just blew up for them because the, the production and the song was what everybody loved. Do you think it made it difficult for the artists to try and even overcome that to, to push themselves forward? Uh, I see what you mean. I mean, there was a point when, when, we, when we worked with Sonia that um, people were saying, oh, God, well, they could make anybody a hit now. And, and that's, that's to undervalue Sonia's... Uh, brilliance, actually, because she's a great little vocalist. Yeah. I say little. I don't. I don't mean that demeaning. She's a great yeah. vocalist. Um, back then, um, she was lovely to work with. And I, I think you know, the idea that the girl next door can be a star, or or the boy next door, like Rick or something, is not is not unheard of in pop. These days, it's the opposite. You've got to be Jesse J or something. You know, you've got to come from one of these schools and be precocious. Um, yes. Back then, you could be innocent, and actually, that's why we liked Kylie in the beginning because she was like the girl next door. Because um, I'm not too keen on the overkill, you know, the the dress to kill. The, yeah. the, the, the All these other things are so much on the periphery, and and in the end, it's all style and no content. And so we were definitely from the other school. And maybe it's a, it's a time gone by, and I should stop stop going on about it. Well, no, I actually disagree. Take, for example, Sonia. I found myself at a show and Sonia was on. And I was always a fan of Sonia, but I never realised she was as good a singer as she actually is. She sang two songs by Whitney Houston, Run To You and I'm Every Woman, and absolutely nailed them. No, she is a, she is a good singer. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Um, I mean, we didn't just do You'll Never Stop Me Loving. You know, we did other stuff with her. We did The End of the World with her, which is a cover. Yeah, it's great. song. And, and you know, they had a whole album, which we didn't... Stock Aiken and Walton, we didn't actually produce the whole album, but um, uh, we had other people do that for us because of our time constraints. But, no, she is a great vocalist, so we shouldn't forget that. And sometimes, you know, to sing a simple song well... Uh, you need more talent. Um, you know, you can swap, you can swap an ounce of feel for a pound of technique any day. And I, 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 these days, singers are all into the technique. When you met, when you first met Kylie Minogue, uh, did you think you had found the star that that she then became? Did you think there was any potential for that, or was she just another singer? Uh, no, uh, the, I, I didn't know very much about her, but I did know that she was an actress in, a, in an Australian soap. Um, so on the day she turned up, I wasn't prepared for her at all. I, I think everyone knows the story now. But effectively, when, when, she, when she sat in the studio, she was in the back of the room crocheting, um, sitting there sort of knitting away. And um, she had little round sort of like national health <laughs> spectacles on and she was very demure and unassuming well matt aiken and myself were getting on with the job um so you didn't you, you didn't see when somebody like pete burns from daryl live turned up in the studio it was in full yeah. drag and makeup <laughs> of course. it was never it was never underplayed he went everywhere like he meant it kylie was uh 
from a different school and so she sat quietly in the background but when the mic when the mic was on she was brilliant when the camera rolled she was a star so um i, I noticed that with a few other people when, when i saw annie lennox first time i was at top of the pops before the cameras were rolling she she was sort of not impressive but suddenly the magic happened when the cameras and lights were on um you know the sparkle it, it came on quite odd but so kylie i felt was not um to look at you didn't think boy she's glamorous or or wild or exotic or any of those things but but she she certainly uh, has proved prove that you don't have to have that like that you've actually got real talent real tenacity and and to staying power so she's such a big star now um she's an icon and i certainly didn't think when i first met her that she'd become that but she proved proved me wrong in that it but it must be so satisfying i think uh to see you know, there was one of her concerts was on television recently and, you know, there were all the hits and the crowd gone wild. And then when she sang I Should Be So Lucky, yeah. I mean, that was what the crowd went wild for. And, you know, some of the kids in the audience probably weren't born when that was released. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I did see her a few years back um, at Earl's Court um, and I went backstage afterwards and we were chatting and I said to Kylie, because... Um, you know, we've all in the business. You've had to grow an extra layer of skin <laughs> because there's so many critics. Um, and she said, she said to me, "Yeah, Mike, I've always worn my steel knickers, um, <laughs> meaning you know, to protect yourself from all the criticism." But in the evening, there we, we watched the show, and um, you're right. She came out in the end in sort of normal dress, not dressed up as she does in her costumes and things, and sang, "I should be so lucky." You know, as it were as it was originally written. Uh, there was no messing about with it. And yet the place did go wild for it. And it did, to me, you know, I haven't heard that in, a, in an auditorium in so many years, but uh, it sounded great. You know, I knew now, I knew then why it was a hit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a while. <laughs> um, and uh, you've worked with so many successful artists, um, but are there any that you feel didn't get the, didn't get the shot that you thought they would have? Um, I know there are um, because there's sort of all nails in my heart. Yeah, uh, you, of well, because you give your love to a project and you think it's going to happen, and then for whatever reason it doesn't. Suzette Charles is a, is a great example of that. Uh, this is an American girl. She won uh, Miss Black America. She won the beauty pageant out there, and then she wanted to work with Doug Aiken and Waterman, and she was signed to RCA. They had no say. She was determined and she flew, got on a plane and came over to see us and we worked with her. But unfortunately, due to the politics involved, because uh, it was RCA UK that was going to release her and that put RCA America and RCA UK kind of in competition with one another. Okay. So it, the project fell about, fell apart. Uh, and we, um, I think I'd done six or seven songs with her by that time. So, and for me, that was a crying shame. She's a great talent and, and, and you know, she should have had more than she did. Um, another band called Boy Crazy, another American girls, who were ahead of their day because there was a blonde one, a ginger one, a dark one. OK. <laughs> um, uh, there were five of them. And, yeah, we, they were the first sort of Spice Girls. Uh, but being American, it all fell... I say that like it's a criticism, but in the in the arguments that you get between the UK and America, we couldn't ever find a, a record that everyone was happy with. 
So she did. They did have a radio hit called "That's What Love Can Do," which did pretty well. But uh, but then we did a whole album, and then they got dropped. So. So it's so sad back in those days that you could go from zero to hero so quickly. Indeed. And the you other know. way around. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You worked with Donna Summer. Um, and I thought it was interesting when she sadly passed away uh, uh, two years ago, I think, um, that on all of the news reports, it, they, it wasn't I feel love that they were showing. It was actually this time I know it's for real. Well, there's a lot of uh, uh, yeah. A lot of people think that her high point was uh, Georgia Moroda and uh, I, you know, I feel love and those sorts of things. She was quite embarrassed about those um, because really? they are sort of well, yeah. In talking to her, she thought. I mean, she, I think I don't say things that are totally wrong, but she'd had a sort of a, um, a, a Damascus experience. She'd seen the light at some point and thought that those sorts of oversexualized music was probably a bit wrong um, and then she made a comment that's, that is publicly known about AIDS being punishment from God or something and so she'd fallen out of favour and when she came to us to work she was really you know at the wrong end of some bad press yeah um, and then but but the first thing we actually released from it was this time I know it's for real and so th- that for me was one of the best experiences I had in the studio because I'd written this song. Yeah. Uh, I thought about it the night before, sort of honed it down in the car driving to work and I'd sung it to her and then suddenly Donna Summer sings it back at me with so many bells and twiddles and lights flashing. It was just a remarkable thing because she is a great, she was a great vocalist uh, without any doubt, one of the best. And, um, Sadly, she she's passed too too soon. Um, but yeah, I would have done an al- another album with her. We only managed to get one, and then it's, an, it's another American story, really. Their record label wanted something else and moved somewhere else, and she never really got back up there, you know. No, uh, I mean, it, it, I think that was such a shame because the, that album, Another Place in Time, is. I think that it's just like it's hit after hit. They were just. I don't know how you chose the songs to actually be released because they were just magnificent. Well, thank you very much, Grode. I like your I like your uh, interpretation. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fan. I mean, it was just uh, going through iTunes looking for clips to use. You know, for when we put the the program together, and right. it's uh, I, I have a lot of them. <laughs> I have a lot of those albums. Um, the before before we talked about what you're doing now, because uh, what you're doing now, I think, is is very exciting. Um, one of the uh, one former artist of yours, briefly, uh, that I, I had on the show last year was actually Gillian Blakeney, who I, I was such a fan. I don't know what it was. There was something about those twins. Yeah, I think that's why it would probably have been our business affairs manager, David Howells, who um, back then thought, well, we've done Jason, we've done Kylie, let's do these twins. And, <laughs> I, I mean, I remember I, I, we worked over Easter on the track that we did. But we didn't do a lot with them in the end. Um and, and I can't imagine, I can't now think what was the impediment there, but it's it, some, something, I think the wheels fell off at some point, and I can't remember why. I put this to Gillian, uh, CD singles of that go for about 500 euro on eBay. 
do they? Yes. I do. So if you've got any of them in your back pocket, Mike, <laughs> that, that could be a business plan. Um, yeah, but I suppose it's, 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 it's rare. That's why. Is there's not, that not many of them were pressed up. I want to talk to you about uh, your new project. You're working on a, an album with Shane Ward, who won The X Factor. Yeah. And that's actually was crowd, that began as a crowdfunding project. Is that right? On, on Pledge Music? Yeah, it did. I mean, look, uh, it's 10 years now since Shane won that competition. And I remember seeing him win it and thinking, well, this guy is actually got the full package. He's got, he's got a fantastic voice. There's, there's no two ways about that. He's one of the best vocalists I've worked with. A diamond geezer, as we say over here. Anyway, yeah. we work with him. Um, he's actually going over to Ireland, he's going to Belfast and Dublin and various other places um, to promote. He's, he's very popular over, over where you are. And um, But when the idea came up to work with him, um, I kind of jumped at it because, unfortunately, he's another example to me of where the industry can build somebody up and then cut them off in their prime. And it was yeah. it would always be to do. It won't be to do with singing. It won't be to do with songs. It will be to do with something irrelevant. You know, like somebody in the A and R department wants to do R and B. Somebody wants to do rock and roll. Some, or something like that. Or <laughs> I don't like you with shaved hair. Or can he grow a beard? It'll be something ridiculous, non mu. You know, yeah. not really to do with the artist themselves. And and so he had a period. He's not made any music for four or five years. And he's done a bit of television. Um, but I thought if he's up for it, because he, he, he's of he's of an age now. He was twenty when he won the X Factor. Yeah. And somebody said he's got a lot of fans, and I. So I, that's why the light went on for me with crowdfunding. I said, well, if the fans are still, the industry, music business can turn its back, but if the fans are still there, that's what makes the industry tick. These guys in their ivory towers, they never meet real people, and so in working with Shane, I've suddenly met thousands, possibly millions of real people who love Shane. So we went with this, I mean, we've had meetings because we, we sent this thing uh, out to them via pledge music, which means we tell them we intend to make an album. If they want to buy the album in advance, put their money in, we'll set a target, um, which you have to set a target because it's a requirement in law. And if we yeah. don't reach that target, they get their money back. Okay. So set a target, and before I knew, we were 80% of target, 90% of target, 100% of target, and it kept going, and it went up 150, 160, and now we're over 200% of the target that was set wow. to prove that fan power is saying to the industry, you may not like Shane, but we love him, and we'd like a record from him, please. So now that, so that gave me the confidence to continue, and we finished the album in December. It's out on April the 12th, and Shane is currently promoting around the country in radio stations and wherever. And we're just, we're just looking at the final uh, rushes for the, for the video today. And so we'll be promoting it like mad. And this is all funded by people who believe in Shane. And I feel like I'm a custodian, not of the money, because the money is irrelevant, but I'm a custodian yeah. of their belief and their passion for him. And I, I want to do them proud I want to and I always felt that it's like when 
doing especially for you, for Jason and Kylie. I didn't want to do it. I thought, well, then somebody said, well, you better do it because Woolworths have just received 400,000. They've placed an order for 400,000. And I thought, oh God, that's faith. That's a faith in me that I can actually make a record with these guys as a duet. And I've not even written a song for them. So I felt pressure on that. And the same way as I'm feeling with Shane, his fans are saying, we trust you. Here's our money, make us an album. Um, so in, in that way, I, I want to do, it's nothing to do with the music industry. It's nothing to do with us, you know, with Sony, with Universal or Warner. It's nothing to do with them. Those guys can go do what they like. This is to do directly with the fans. And when I looked on Facebook, he's got two million, two and a half million of them or something, you know, and a quarter of a million plus on Twitter. And they're, and they're the ones that are active in these areas. And they're real people out there. They're not just this fictitious audience. And everybody is talking about a virtual audience, but I've met the real people. He may have a quarter of a million on Twitter, but they're just names in a box. I've been out and met. The pledges have been to the studio as part of the things that we offer them. Okay. They came and watched part of the process. So I've been in the room here with somebody from Newcastle, somebody from Scotland, somebody from Belfast, somebody from Cornwall, who are real fans and they've watched the process. So this is, a, for me, an, uh, just a breath of fresh air about how you tackle this. You know, you're not dealing with some faceless A&R director in an office somewhere in London. And, like, that always seems to have been your ethos, because even with Stock Aiken and Waterman, when, uh, when you know, the critics, of course, were having a go at the music, I mean, there was never any attempt to change anything for the critics, because... The fans were getting exactly what they want, and I think that that's what makes the industry so exciting now with crowdfunding, is that the yeah. fans are now in control. Well, I, I would love it to be absolutely the case because uh, you you know over the years the music industry has taken uh, shot itself in the foot. I think it's lost a lot of it's shrunk enormously. There's only three major companies now, yeah. and and it's all down to their actions. You know, they because what what business can survive that totally ignores its customer. I mean, that's just ridiculous. I, I mean, the, one thing that used to really annoy me about the music industry was that uh, you could buy an album in June and a week before Christmas, the album would be re-released with a track that you didn't have. <laughs> yeah. And you kind of think that used to happen when you were 16 and had no money. And you're kind of like, well, you know, the first chance I get to screw these guys, I'm going to take it. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly, yeah. My favourite example of crowdfunding was um, there was a, a TV show called Veronica Mars, uh, which I've never actually seen, but it, it got axed in the US. And the fans of the show actually crowdfunded to put the whole thing back together to make a movie to wrap it up because they felt they'd been robbed. Right. Which I think is so exciting. I mean, no, that's it, brilliant. That's brilliant. Um, and the only thing is that crowdfunding in, in its more formal way now is becoming, as, as it were, part of the industry. And I just hope they don't destroy the uh, the ethos behind it. Yeah, hopefully not. And is before we head, uh, because I realise you're pressed for time with uh, with everything that you're going to be doing today, um, is there anything, and I'm, I'm sure this might be a difficult question to answer, because is there anything you haven't achieved yet in, in, the, in the music industry that you would like to achieve? Is there anything you haven't done? 
Um, <clears throat> that, that's, a, that's a good question as well as a difficult one. I mean, the point is, I, I sometimes have said in the past that I want to write the perfect pop song, and I'm still really looking for that, you know, with no flaws, no blemish, just absolutely perfect. I can name about 15 that you've already written, Mike. So. <laughs> and I appreciate you saying that. And some people say, well, I'm never going to give you up, was that, wasn't it? Um, <laughs> but I, I, I don't know. Um, you know, every every artist is a new, a new a new challenge, and I just think I want to keep doing this for as long as I can. Um, that's the only thing I'm wishing for. I mean, as long as my health holds out, and you know, because I'm in my 60s now, and I'm not not exactly a, a spring chicken. Um, so as long as I can keep doing it, I will. But I'm really I'm always quite happy to be in the shadow and let the pop stars do the shining. You know, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not always pushing myself forward, you know. So that, and I'm happy with that, uh, as long as they. I and mean, that's my aim, really, is to make them stars. Well, you've certainly done that, and uh, on behalf of I think everyone that's ever bought a Stock Aiken and Waterman single or a Mike Stock single, uh, I think you've made a lot of childhoods and teenage years a lot less bleak than they might have been. So, um, thank you very, very much for that. Oh, it's a pleasure. Mike Stock there, what a great guy he is. There has been many a late night drive from a gig that I have put on a Stock Aiken and Waterman playlist and sung along the whole length of the M9 just to stay awake. <laughs> so thanks a million for that, Mike. Actually, listening back to that interview, you can hear in my voice, I was nervous right up to the end. Did you hear that little quiver all the way through it? There's no doubt about it, this man has left one hell of a legacy. So do you know what? Maybe it was all right to be nervous. The interest in Stock Aiken and Waterman continues and their albums continue to be remastered and re-released. And I suppose that it's here that their productivity and their work ethic really worked against them because they admit themselves there's very little in the vaults. They had to work at such speed that they didn't make demos or record different versions and almost everything that was recorded was released and Mike and Matt played every instrument. Now I was only a kid at the time but I do remember the press really went after them. I remember there were crazy rumours that Kylie Minogue was an alien, that she didn't exist and that Rick Astley actually sung the songs and that if you slowed down I should be so lucky from 45 to 33 you'd see it was actually Rick Astley singing it. I remember being devastated by that. <laughs> now Mike is on Twitter. He is Mike Stock Music and he's particularly good at things like the voice and the X Factor, like the comments he puts up are brilliant because there's really no bullshit with this man. He's been around the block. The Shane Ward album that he mentioned is available in all the usual places. If you liked this episode, why not have a listen back to episode four, Meet Your Heroes, which is an interview I did with Gillian Blakeney, who recorded with Stock Aiken and Waterman and she was an actress in Neighbours and her life has changed dramatically since those days. Uh, she is now a very successful entrepreneur and she is just amazing to listen to her talk about her life. So have a listen to that one. It was one of my favourites. Another one I was nervous for, I think. If you want to get in touch, Garode at GaroadFarrelly.com or at GaroadFarrelly on Twitter. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends and sure drop me a line. Why would you not drop me a line? I'm just sitting here in my spare room talking at my computer. Okay, till next time. Oh my god, it is Rick Astley. Free Kids Workshops are back in stores at the Home Depot. On the first Saturday of every month from 9 a.m. to 12 p.m., bring your little ones to a local Home Depot for a hands-on learning experience that kids love. Find more kid-friendly projects and kids' workshop kits at homedepot.com kids. 
for 25 years, The Home Depot has been building confident, future doers with its free kids workshops. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. Lost supplies last, U.S. only.